mantle architecture of scripture. Um, what is the, the structure of scripture? How do all the, the various components fit together? Well, that, that's a question that we inter- interacted with last night. We're going to get a bit more granular tonight after those preliminaries, and we're going to walk through each of the biblical covenants. That sounds like a lot to do in an hour, so we better get going. And uh, I am going to draw up here on the whiteboard, and I'm hoping that you can all see it. So if I write something and you say to yourself, I can't read what you wrote, uh, just, just raise your hand and, and I can, or you, know, you can move up closer. We have, have these rows up, uh, up here. So I'm going to draw, I'm going to start out with six lines here. I, I, I'm hoping that's the right number of lines. One, two, three, four, five. I know they're not perfect here, but I'm doing my best. Um, and in each of these columns here, we are going to talk through one of the biblical covenants. We're going to do these one at a time. And so the first one that we're going to talk about is the covenant with Adam. The covenant with Adam. And there's actually a few things, more than a few actually, that I want to talk about with each of these covenants. So let's see if I can fit all this up on the whiteboard. So the first thing I want to talk about is parties. Parties. The next thing I want to talk about would be, uh, how about place? Parties, place. The third thing is going to be obligations. Then we're going to talk about benefits. I could have given more space to these, could have I? Benefits. And then we're going to talk about, uh, ooh, sanctions after that. So we're going to try to do all of these things for each of these. Ah, that's not a very straight. I should have had someone else who can draw better do this for me. Place. There we go, obligations. And what I'm going to say is that most of these are involved with each of the covenants. Ooh, I forgot one. Signs. Signs. Last night we talked about dispensationalism and how, uh, you know, with dispensationalism, something it, it is known for, at least for some people, are their charts and graphs. But I say... Covenant theology, you can have charts too, right? So we have, we have our chart here. Um, all right, so Adam. Let, let's first talk about Adam, the Adamic covenant. And if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you uh, to pull it out. Take, take out that Bible because we're going to be looking at some scriptures. So if, if we want to know, if, if I'm saying Adam was involved in a covenant with God, and by the way, who can tell me what a covenant is? Maybe somebody that, that was here. It's okay if you weren't. A formal agreement. Okay. A formal binding agreement. So, so most basically, a covenant is just an agreement, and these agreements have more than one party. No, 
two parties, right? We're, we're going to find two parties in these covenants. So if we say there was an agreement, an agreement that God made with Adam, that God made with Adam, uh, where would we look in the Bible for this? Genesis. Did I hear Genesis? Yeah, okay, Genesis. That would be a good place to look. So we could look to, uh, say, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is something we've already talked about. We talked about yesterday, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. What is dominion? Rule. What's entailed in rule? Taking care of, right? I, I think care would be a big part of this. Stewardship, because at the end of the day, who is the capital R ruler? I mean, was, was God tagging Adam and saying, you know what, I'm just, I'm tired of being king. It's your turn, and, right? <laughs> Handing over the kingdom to him. No, he was, it's my kingdom, but I'm going to appoint you as caretaker of all my stuff. So, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There, there's dominion language again. Subdue it and have dominion. Here we have it again. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So everything you can see, you look down in the water, you look up at the sky and you see the birds, the, the land animals around you, the earth, all of it. So that's one place that we'd look. Uh, I, I think we'd want to look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17 as well. And we see here the Lord God took the man, and at this point in the narrative, remember that Genesis 1 has more of a, a zoomed-out view of God's work of creation. Genesis 2 zooms in on the sixth day and God's creation of the first human beings. And first we see that the, the male, Adam, is created, and that's what we have here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He was put there for a purpose. He was given a job, work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, that seems significant as well. So we put this all together and we say to ourselves, what kind of agreement is in place here? What, what has Adam effectively agreed to do? What is the charge that's been given to him by God? Rule, multiply, work, keep, yeah, anything else? Uh, don't eat the tree. So we have some positive commands, and we have some negative commands given to Adam. Now, interestingly, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, that, that language of work and keep later in the scripture is language that is used exclusively of the Levites. And who knows what Levites do? Priestly function. They care 
for the temple. And Eden was a kind of temple. It was the place of God's manifest presence on earth. So we see Adam here as a kind of priest. What else do we see him as a, a kind of here? We talked about dominion. King. He has a kingly sort of function. And then what also is implied in this passage? Who gets the commands from God in Genesis 2? Adam. And what do we assume he's supposed to do? Communicate. Communicate those to other people. So, we see a priestly, a prophetic, and a kingly role here in Adam's work, which is interesting, because those are going to become the three anointed offices in the Old Testament. The three anointed offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. To be anointed is to be especially set apart, consecrated for service. Okay, uh, so God has given Adam a charge, and we would say this, based on looking at the rest of Scripture, we looked at Romans 5 on Sunday morning, we would say that the parties are whom? Who are, uh, well, of course, God. Isn't God one of the parties? Yeah, so we, we would say God, and I'm just going to use the shorthand for lack of space, Greek, th, from theos, okay, God there. God, who, who else is a party to this? Okay, very good. Adam, and what did we say Adam is on Sunday morning? Not just on Sunday morning, like every day of the week, right? But uh, this past Sunday we said it. He's a covenant head, which means what? So I'm just going to say human head, meaning, I know the writing's small, he is the covenant is with Adam, but through Adam, it's a covenant made with the entirety of the human race. What, what is the place? Eden. Okay. Eden, good. They're, they're in Eden when this covenant is made. Um, let me erase a line here, and you'll, you'll see why in a few moments. Eden, okay, obligations. Obligations are dominion and don't eat, right? What are, ooh, we know the sanctions. What is a sanction, by the way? What happens to you when you don't obey? We talked about the example of an automobile loan. What are the sanctions on an automobile loan? You don't pay your payment, it gets repossessed. Sanctions would be what? Death. Death. What about the benefits? Now that's an interesting one. What would Adam and all those whom he represented get if they obeyed? Why would you say that? Eternal life. Death hadn't come in yet. Now, what's interesting is when you turn to Genesis 3.22. Genesis 3.22. And I think it's, it's more implied than explicit in some ways in this passage. But Genesis 3.22, I think, is a, is a helpful component uh, 
of putting all the pieces together, uh, Adam has transgressed the covenant. He's now been put out of the place of God's presence, this temple-like Garden of Eden. He's been put out from it. And what is he told? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we, we see there that there is this promise of eternal life that's being held out to Adam. And so we'd say the, the benefit would be eternal life, not just for Adam, but for all of those whom he represented. So eternal life. Life is the reward. Death is the consequence when it comes to this Adamic covenant. Now, we're going to talk about the trees in just a second. But signs, almost every covenant has a sign. Now, if you're married, what is the sign of that covenant of marriage? Your ring, right? Does the ring make you married? Well, no, but it's a sign. It, it, it declares to everyone that you are married. What was, any ideas, what was the sign of this covenant? Who said that? Why would you say so? Your husband just said it. It sounded like a good idea. Well, <laughs> at least this time, you know, it was a good idea for you to listen to your husband. Uh, it was, it's tree of life. Tree of life. What do signs do? What do covenant signs do? They are reminders of the terms of the covenant. And here, looking at the tree of life, um, I don't think the tree of life had magical fruit. I actually don't think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had magical fruit either. I think the tree of life functions as a covenant sign for Adam to look to and be reminded of God's promise that life would be the reward for his obedience. Now, we, we talked a little bit already about tree of knowledge of good and evil. There are different ideas. The idea that makes the most sense to me, you know, one idea would be that if, if Adam ate from this tree, what would happen? He would possess some kind of knowledge, some greater enhanced form of knowledge that he didn't already have. I would say, because if we look later in Scripture, we see this exact same language used of kings. And what kings are supposed to do is they are to distinguish good and evil. Okay? A king is the one, at the end of the day, the buck stops there. If somebody has to make a determination of what's right and wrong, it is the king. I think what's happening here with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what it represents as Adam choosing for himself as king what is right and what is wrong. It, it signifies, in other words, autonomous choice. By grabbing the fruit from that tree, what was Adam effectively saying? I'm no longer little K king, but I am big K king. I'm the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, which is effectively what he did in partaking of that fruit. So one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would, would signify his, his disobedience of the covenant. The other tree signifies the reward for his obedience. So here we have the Adamic covenant. Now, um, that brings us 
to the next covenant, which is what? Ooh, before that one, we got one before Abraham even. Noah, the covenant with Noah. Now, I talked a little bit about this, and I'm just going to go, what, what comes next, Abraham? What's the one after that? Abraham. What was, what's the next one? Moses. And then what's next? David. And then what? Christ. Okay. Did I not say on Sunday morning that looking at Romans 5, 12 to, 20, to 21, we could see that Paul divides up all human history into three different epochs? Did I, say, I, I think I said that. Yeah. What are those epochs if we're looking at our, our chart here? Speak up so I can hear you. Adam to Mo, Adam. To Moses, okay. Adam to Moses, good. And what's the next one? Moses to Christ. What I want to suggest here is that the way that we would want to group this would be that the Adamic epoch goes to here. The Mosaic epoch includes all of this. And then here is the final epoch. And we have basically three epochs in human history. Now, we'll get back to filling out our chart in just a minute. If we were to look at Scripture, we would see, um, in terms of looking at this, these various epochs, that it's basically Genesis 1 through 11 that deals with this epoch. And I'm going to call it primeval. Primeval. What does primeval mean? Anyone know? Okay, good. First, it mean, it just means first age. And theologians will, will oftentimes refer to this time period, Genesis 1 through 11, as primeval history. The first age. What brings about the second age? Well, there's this immense flood that covers the entire world. And, and there's a kind of, it's not an absolute reset, but there's a kind of reset that takes place after that flood, which brings us into this second age, which right, for our purposes, I'm just going to call the Old Testament or Old Covenant Age, and I'm going to call this, oops, not an O, the New Covenant Age. So we have these three epochs, um, here's an interesting question. So just go with me for, for the time being. We'll continue fill, filling this out. But, but assume that these divisions are correct. If Genesis 1 through 11 includes this primeval epoch, uh, what, what scriptures would discuss the, this Old Testament epoch or era? Well, we probably start at Genesis 12, wouldn't we? Because that, becomes, that comes after Genesis 11. And when would it run to? So you're reading in your Bible, say Genesis 12, and I, I keep going, I keep flipping forward. Um, when is that over? And when do we get to the next epoch? 
Malachi? City? Be beginning of Acts, maybe? Pentecost at Acts? Those the great answers, Malachi, so that would be the last book in our Bibles. Of course, Second Chronicles would be the last book um, in kind of the Hebrew organization of the Bible, which is interesting. Second Chronicles. What happens at the end of Second Chronicles? The people return to the land. They're sent out by this man named Cyrus, who is God's instrument. He's even referred to as an anointed one, a Messiah. Here we have a pagan who, whom God is working through to bring his people back to the land. That's a story for another day. Um, I'm going to suggest this. I'm going to suggest that it's AD 70. What happens in AD 70? The temple is destroyed. I believe that there is an overlap between the old covenant and the new covenant eras. Uh, and the, the new covenant is coming in. The old covenant is fading out. I would say that old covenant epoch is finally over when the temple is destroyed. And so I would say that the new covenant epoch, this is running from... Um, it's in full force. It begins to come in, of course, in the ministry uh, of Jesus at Pentecost. It's in full force by the time that we get to AD 70. And this is the epoch that we're in. Oops. AD 70. This is the epoch we're in going forward. Okay. Let's come back to filling in our, our handy-dandy chart here. Uh, no way at covenant. Who are the parties of this covenant? Yes. Yeah, great question. And, and I mean, this is actually something that I think um, people who largely agree about the organization here might have slight <clears throat> differences of opinion. Um, you have a, a tra we certainly see in the book of Acts, which is after it is finished, something got finished on the cross. And I guess the question is, what is finished there? Um, I would say what is finished at that point in time is what I'm going to refer to a bit later as Christ's passive obedience. Anyone know what I mean by passive obedience? That's the act of obedience. Yeah, so that's the, the corollary of passive obedience. Re receiving the punishment due for violation of that Adamic covenant. Yes, sir. Yeah, and I in no way would say that the, old, that the new covenant is not in effect. Uh, but I would still say that these epochs are in a time of transition, and we see that in the book of Acts, right? We see that 
see in the book of Acts, Jews continue to perform Jewish rituals, and that's not looked down upon. They're not told you absolutely have to stop doing this, right? And, but you have Gentiles coming in, and they don't need to practice some of these, these Jewish rituals. So in my thinking, it's a time of overlap. I would look at Matthew 24 as a passage referring to what's on the horizon. The disciples are asking, when is, you know, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And he's looking forward to a future time when that temple will be restored. And I would say that that old covenant economy comes to a complete end. Once the temple is destroyed, there's no longer any ability to participate in that temple system. So, yeah, I would not say that there's a a delay in benefits of the new covenant, right? There's no delay in benefits, but there is one era being phased out while another is being phased in. Yes? It was a judgment. Yeah, full, the full outworking of those Deuteronomy, Deuteronomic curses, they come to bear... Uh, at that time, there's a judgment on national Israel that takes place at that time. And until that judgment is complete, that hasn't been fully completed. Yeah. Okay, we can come back to this on the Q&A time. I I do want to keep moving forward here. Um, Noahic covenant, where do we look at for this? In Scripture, we look at Genesis 8.20 to 9.17. And we find a covenant here made with a man named Noah. Noah, right? So we'd say that the parties here, and I'm going to say again that Noah is a covenant head of the human race. However, however, the benefit the benefit of this covenantal arrangement is not eternal life, but it is life of some kind. I would say that the benefit is temporal life. What do I mean by that? What does God promise not to do in the Noahic covenant? He's not going to destroy the earth via a flood. He is going to allow creation to remain in existence. Now, creation has gotten pretty darn wicked, right? Gotten pretty darn wicked. And yet, God says, I'm going to sustain existence. I'm not not going to allow it to be as wicked as it possibly could be. I'm going to continue to allow it to uh, move forward in existence. And I would argue that the reason he does that, he allows it to remain in existence so that he may bring about his plan of redemption ultimately in Christ. So he does agree not to give humans what they deserve, but he gives a kind of grace. He gives common grace, not saving special grace, but he gives common grace to all humans through Noah as a covenantal representative. Now, what is the sign of this covenant? Rainbow. So what are we, and I'm going to say that there are no obligations. It's not that God doesn't tell humans anything about what to do. In fact, what is the interesting thing about what God tells humans to do? 
When have we heard that before? Be fruitful and multiply. He reiterates that same basic job description for humans. Exercise dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. You have that same basic job description reiterated. But I would say that there are no obligations uh, for the cov- th- this covenant with Noah being in effect, which makes it what kind of covenant? We talked about three different kinds. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, and then we talked about the covenant of redemption. So which of those would it be? Grace. I would say this is a covenant of grace, but it's a covenant unto temporal life rather than eternal life. One other thing I want to point out here of this first epoch, the place, I would argue, was Eden. It was Eden, but God's plan was always that Eden would extend to the entire world. Right? Ever heard uh, this idea... I think it's pretty biblical in the New Testament. Be faithful with little. Right? And what will God do if you've been faithful with little? What is this basic principle? He'll, he'll give you more. Right? Be, be faithful with the little thing that I've given you. And you think about Eden. What is Eden? Eden is one little place right? in, in the entire earth. And where is the Garden of Eden? Well, it's, it's in Eden somewhere. You could say, that, you know, the Garden of Kennewick. There's a garden somewhere in Kennewick. And God says, okay, go to that garden and just be faithful there. We'll we'll see how you do. And, of course, what does Adam do? Well, he's unfaithful in that little thing. But I I would posit, through, through looking at the entire sweep of Scripture, that the plan was always for Eden to extend to the whole world. If Adam had been faithful, this thing would have went out. And think about it. What's going to happen if Adam is, with his wife, is being fruitful and multiplying? You're going to have babies. And those babies are going to have babies, and those babies are going to have babies. And people are going to need to spread out over time. All right, we got the first epoch down here. Let's move on to the second. And the second begins with Abraham... You then have Moses, and you have David. And what I'm going to contend is that these are all of a piece. These are all of a piece. So I'm going to erase these lines again. Now, interestingly, where does the Abrahamic covenant begin? It doesn't begin in Eden. Where does it begin? Somewhere out in the world. Abraham is among pagans. And what is he called to do? He's called to go. So it's just the opposite. Abraham is called to go out from the world. And where is he called to go? Promised land? Did somebody say that? The land of Canaan. And Canaan, in Scripture, is in many ways, a new Eden. This now is going to be the place of God's manifest presence with his people. He's called out to Canaan, but let me ask you a question. Let's say God calls Abraham. Abraham, of course, has children. Those children multiply. Now you have the nation of Israel. What would have happened if the nation of Israel had been faithful? Well, doesn't God 
tell Abraham that? You will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so the implication there, well, it's stronger than an implication, is that that's going to go back out to the world. So the plan is always that this thing will go global, but it always starts in a smaller place before going out. Okay, we, let's look at Abraham, and let's first talk about the parties here. The parties for Abraham, I'm going to say, are not the human head. Does Abraham represent the entire human race? I would say no. He represents his family. You have the family head, and God, and because he's the family head, he's representing his family. In terms of obligations, now, we talked about this last night. Are there obligations in the Abrahamic covenant? What do you think? I see a nod. Anyone want to shake their head? Yeah. Okay. Okay, he has to teach them. The Abrahamic passages, and again, for the sake of time, we can't look at all of them. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Those are the three passages you want to look at for the Abrahamic covenant, but I'm just going to briefly read from Genesis 17. Verse 2. Well, I'll start at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Be blameless. Now, now what was really the bottom line obligation for Adam in the garden? What was he supposed to do? We, we've talked about some specific responsibilities, but at the end of the day, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to exercise faith, he's to believe God, and he's to obey God. Right? Obedience at the end of the day, that same thing Abraham is responsible for doing. He is responsible for obeying God. And what, what is one of the ways that he is going to obey God? What is explicitly mentioned right there in Genesis 17? This is what obedience looks like. Okay, having, <laughs> have lots of babies. Um, well, it's related to having babies. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he does have to go, so that's another obligation, yeah. Circumcision, right? You must circumcise your children. So that is another obligation, circumcision. And in fact, we're going to say, and I'm going to erase this here, I'm going to suggest that the sign of all three of these is the sign of circumcision. We don't see the giving of a new sign for David. The Sabbath is called a sign 
uh, in Scripture in reference to the Mosaic Covenant, but I don't think it functions nonetheless technically as a sign. We can talk more about that. I think the sign that remains throughout this entire era, and of course people are still doing it right here when Christ comes, right? Is that sign of circumcision. What about benefits? Eternal, li- eternal life? Is that a benefit that God promises Abraham? If you do this, you'll have eternal life. Circumcise your kids and you'll have eternal life. Basically, you will enjoy life in the land of Canaan. So I would say temporal life. We'll just leave it at that here. Temporal life in Canaan. You will get to possess the land. You will get to stay in the land. Your enemies surrounding you will be defeated. You will enjoy life in the land of Canaan. And if we fast forward to Deuteronomy 28, who knows what's in Deuteronomy 28? Blessings and curses. And if you look at all the blessings, all the blessings are, you're going to have a really good life in Canaan. And all the curses are, your enemies are going to invade you, and eventually you're going to have to leave the land of Canaan. It's about temporal life in the land of Canaan. So the sanctions, we, we could say, would be exile. A lot of other pieces, too, when you read through Deuteronomy 28. But at the end of the day, things are going to go really poorly for you as a nation. And at the end of it, you're going to have to leave the land, which is exactly the state that national Israel is in right here before the coming of Christ. Israel is still effectively in exile. Okay, Moses. Hmm. Who are the parties here? God and Moses, and I would say that Moses here is a national mediator. Abraham's still the family head, and yet Moses is a national mediator. He's mediating on behalf of the nation. What are the obligations? Basically, obedience, there is a new layer here, right? Obedience, circumcision just continues. Obedience, something new is added with the giving of the law. You have those Ten Commandments, remember those? And in the Ten Commandments, we have this commandment regarding the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath... I don't think it's the sign of the covenant. We can talk about that. But it is a specific obligation, Sabbath observance. What is the benefit? Okay, that is said all throughout this time. Yeah, you will be, I will be your God, you will be, be my people. The specific benefits, though, just are contemporal, again, temporal life in the land of Canaan. That basic benefit hasn't changed. The basic, uh, basic sanction has not changed either. Expulsion. I want to add another layer, though, to 
coming back to the Abrahamic covenant. Because what's interesting in the Abrahamic covenant is that in the Abrahamic covenant, you have the family of Abraham. What happens if one person breaks covenant? They are cut off. They are cut off. So the, the covenant promises can remain. The covenant promises can remain in effect, and yet you can have individuals within the covenant community who are cut off. So before we even get to national exile, you have a kind of exile for some of the members of this covenant as they are cut off and sent out from among the people of God. And this brings us, we have our last two columns here, and then we can have some time for discussion. David, uh, where we want to look here is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. Uh, Who are the parties? Well, God and David. And I'm going to call him not a family head, but a national head. Because he is really the first rightful king of Israel. And he serves in this kingly role over Israel. And what we find is that there are obligations and there are benefits and sanctions tied to this. His obligation, again, simply is obedience. It's interesting, though, that the obedience that is referred to when it comes to David, it is obedience but he's is to obey as a son. He's to, to obey as a son. He's looked upon as a figure who is a son of God. What about benefits? Well, the, the benefit basically is that the throne will not depart from his household. His descendants will remain on the throne. Sanctions uh, basically are that his lineage will be dethroned. And we find this in a number of places, 2 Samuel 7, 14 being one of those. Now, we really don't have the constitution of national Israel apart from these three covenants working together. Right? How do you have the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, which Moses mediates for if you don't have Abraham? And the people of that covenant just are the descendants of Abraham. And how is national Israel functioning properly? And how does it have those kings that were promised to Abraham unless you have the Davidic covenant and a Davidic king? So we really don't have the full uh, realization of this Old Testament covenant community until we have all three of these covenants in place and they all work together. Okay, finally, we're going to talk about Christ, where this is all leading to. And I'm going to, again, do this quickly because I want some time for question and interaction. And I know that it's a lot. I've tried to package all the covenants of Scripture into less than an hour, right? Which is a real feat here. Um, Parties. Who would the parties be? Okay, we got God. That's good. And... Christ, 
okay, we do have the Father and Son. Remember from last night, theology and economy. We are over here in the economy, and we're talking about, um, so you're right, if we're talking about the covenant of redemption, we, we'd go in that direction. If we're over here in the economy, where would we go? Say it again. Okay, good, good one. The elect, anything else? Who represents the elect? Jesus, right? So it's God and Christ as human head. A covenant head who represents humanity. What about obligations? Are there obligations? Faith, at the end of the day, let's just say obedience again. And I'm going to, I did break these out here on Adam, but just to make this, for the sake of symmetry, at the end of the day, it is faithful obedience. Obedience, what is the benefit? Eternal life. I would say that that is included. Yeah, in, 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 I'd have to go a little bit of a different direction to get into that, so let's hold on that for a second. Eternal life. What about sanctions? Hmm. What kind of covenant is this? Sanctions. You say no sanctions. Okay, well, let's just let's take sanctions off the table for a minute. This is an interesting one. This is an interesting one. What kind of covenant is this covenant? I'm calling it the new covenant. The covenant, I mean, that's what the Bible calls it, right? Jeremiah 31, we have it there, Hebrews 8. It's called the new covenant. Um, what kind of covenant is this for us? Covenant of grace. So, And you've noticed that there are only two covenants on this board that have a human head of the human race with a benefit of eternal life. Only two of them. Only those two, right? So when we, we looked at Romans 5, 12 to 21, we, we talked about the fact that there's kind of a sandwich. You know, he talks about Adam to Moses to Christ. Um, but in, in the middle of it, it's just a comparison of Adam and Christ. It doesn't talk about Moses at all. You say, why? Why doesn't it talk about Moses in the meat of this passage? Why not? Because there are only two people you can look to as covenant head who potentially could have given you eternal life. And at the end of the day, that is what we all need, eternal life. Now, just one more layer, and then I'm going to stop for questions. This is an interesting covenant, the new covenant. I mean, for a lot of reasons. And I asked you the question, what kind of covenant is it for us? And you say, a covenant of grace. Why is a covenant of grace? What's the definition of a covenant of grace? From, yes, from last night, no- I know. It was the evening. Say it again. One party fulfills all the obligations. 
Who fulfills the obligation so that you may inherit eternal life? Christ. Christ does it all. But what kind of covenant was it for Christ? If that's the kind of covenant it is for us, what kind of covenant was it for Christ? It was a covenant of works. He had to obey. He had to obey. So this is an interesting one because it's both a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Thanks be to God, it's not a covenant of works for us. It is a covenant of grace for us. One, okay, I said that one last thing. Here's the one last thing because I brought it up before. When we look at Christ, and, and by the way, what is the sign here? The sign of the new covenant. Baptism. Ooh, we'll be talking about that a lot more tomorrow night. Because what we'll find is that the difference between Westminster Reformed theology and Second London Baptist Confession Reformed theology is a difference in understanding about this covenant. Okay. Uh, this covenant of grace. The one last thing that I want to add is that Christ really, we just talked about this a bit ago, had to obey in two ways. What are those two ways of obedience that we talked about? Passive and active. Okay. I'm going to suggest that Adam, there was a potential for him to earn the blessing of eternal life for himself and for those whom he represented through obedient, perfect obedience to the law for a time period. I'm going to suggest that. What kind of obedience would that be of the active and passive? Passive is receiving something. Active is doing something. So it would be the active. Active obedience. He, he would have had to actively obey the law. And he could have got eternal. So if he had to only actively obey the law to get eternal life, why am I saying that Christ had to actively obey and passively receive the curse for disobedience? Why do you have to do that? Because we're all born in Adam. So he not only fulfill, does the exact same thing Adam ought to have done in perfectly upholding the law, therefore winning us the reward of eternal life, at the same time, he receives the punishment that we deserve for transgression of the law. Does that make sense? Why both are necessary? So in other words, you can't just have Christ dying on a cross. You can't just have Christ dying on the cross. Why? What would have that done if, if Christ had simply come, endured this life of suffering, took upon himself the penalty of death? What status would have that left you in? Yeah. Say, okay, okay, guys, I took the punishment, right? So, so slate is now clean, but you're back where Adam was. Now you have to obey perfectly if you're going to, going to obtain the reward of eternal life. And I don't think that's a position any of us want to be in, right? I mean, we probably all think, I, you know, if, I wish I'd been there instead of Adam, dummy, right? I would have done a better job than him. But the truth of the matter is we wouldn't have. All right, I know that's a lot. Um, oh, and by the I keep saying one last thing, but this is actually important. 
What's the place of this? Cosmos? Okay. Where does it start? So let's say that this started in Eden. The intent was to go out to the world. Where does this start? Jerusalem. And what are we told in the Great Commission? Go out into the world. This basic pattern of going from God's place of covenant fellowship, of manifest presence, and taking it out to the world, that same pattern obtains whether we're looking at this first Adamic primeval epoch or the Old Testament epoch or the New Testament epoch. The, the big idea is that God's plan has always been the same. His eyes have always been set on the entirety of the world and his covenant people going out. And as they do exercising dominion, not in, in terms of a malevolent, obey me kind of rule, but caring for and bringing blessing and flourishing to the whole earth. And that's what we're agents of right now uh, as the church. I mean, that's our charge to bring flourishing and blessing to the whole world. Okay. Questions? Mm hmm Sure, we do have that sacrament as well. Why is this uniquely identified as a covenant sign in, in, in terms of baptism? And why do, do we not include the Lord's Supper as, as a covenant sign? Um, yeah, I, I would say that we, we do have two sacraments in the New, new Covenant. We, we have that, that sacrament of baptism and the, we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, is something that is um, something that we participate in that harkens back to the uh, Passover meal. Right? And so I, I see continuity there between the two where I see baptism as being something that is, is new with this new covenant which is perhaps why we uniquely identify it as the sign of this covenant. Something that had not been instituted before. I could say more about baptism, because baptism actually was practiced well before the coming of the new covenant, but it had not been instituted. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what's interesting when was when you look at dispensational schemes, the the breakdown of eras in human history looks looks pretty similar, and so the uh, and it, there is no one dispensational way of breaking down the epochs of human history. There are manifold ways of of doing so, and they tend to look pretty similar. Um, so what's the difference then? We talked about that last night. What's the difference? And what did I say last night about older Reformed authors? They call these dispensations. 
So what's different? Yeah, the idea of whether there is one people of God or two peoples of God. Whether you, you have a different plan for the people in this epoch than you do with the people in this epoch. Um, and whether this was, if we're talking about the church, and of course all dispensationalists are going to agree, um, Israel needed their Messiah to, to pay for their sins. So, so really no disagreement in terms of how people are saved. There's no disagreement there whatsoever. Uh, n- nonetheless, they're going to be looking at the church this particular people of God that comes about in the New Covenant era, again, as a parenthesis, something not foreseen, not originally part of, of God's plan for Israel. Yes? This is the time for uh, off topic. <laughs> okay. So, okay, yeah, great question. So I think, was it last night we talked about how many times in the Old Testament you have that word berit used? Was it, it was about 270, right? 270 times. So there are covenants happening all the time in the Old Testament, right? During this, this epoch. There's covenants happening all over the place, right? You have marriage covenants, covenants between friends, covenants between nations. God looking at a, an individual and making an agreement with, with, with them. So agreements are just taking place all over the place. And so the, 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 the question is, um, you know, is, what kind of agreement is this? Is this an agreement wherein we have something that, I mean, we're sig- we're, we're um, we're distinguishing these agreements, we're singling out these agreements from the other agreements because they have special significance for a large group of people. So why would we not put that here? I mean, other than I kind of ran out of room. Why, why would we not put this up here? Phineas, why not? Does that have enduring significance for corporately the people of Israel as a whole? Um, yeah, I'd have to look at look at the passage to kind of kind of think through how that pertains exactly. Another thing that you'll notice is that you have a lot of that forever kind of language in in the way that God is talking with His covenant people, and kind of the big idea is that God's promises to this person endure. Um, so even when we're looking at all the promises to national Israel, you'll oftentimes have that forever kind of language. Um, and it, it's a way of underscoring or stressing God's faithfulness, God's enduring faithfulness, rather than saying, I mean, Phineas obviously doesn't continue as a priest. I mean, he dies. 
He's a, he's a human being who, who, who dies. He doesn't remain as priest within the, the nation of Israel forever. But there's something about God's promise that is everlasting. And I think, furthermore, there, there's something about what somebody like Phineas typifies that is going to endure going forward. Yes. Sure. Romans 4, yeah. Yeah, on the basis of Genesis 17, because it explicitly refers to it as an obligation. So Genesis 17, um, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So God's pretty clear there um, that if, if circumcision is not practiced, a person who is not circumcised will be cut off from the covenant community. Um, so how should we understand Romans 4 then is the question, right? Sure. So um, what is Paul's point in Romans 4? Faith, not works. Um, that it's not by works of the law that Abraham was justified, but by faith, which is absolutely true. Um, the, 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 the sign of, of circumcision, God's covenant with Abraham, that takes place because of Abraham's faith, right? So, so that's his point. Is, is it's, and especially with Jews looking at circumcision, they're, working, they're looking at this as an external working of the law, Some, something to do to mark out, hey guys, I'm a law keeper. And Paul's saying that never was the way that anyone was justified not even Abraham, the paradigmatic man of faith. I don't think it's in any way to downplay in this epoch the significance of circumcision. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and I would have got into this if if, if we'd had more time tonight, but... Um, why don't we get together tomorrow night and the next night? We'll just, we'll just keep going. But uh, um, is that the Abrahamic covenant is, is really interesting because of the way in which it does two different things. 
it's working on more than one level. I would say on one level, what it is doing is that the Abrahamic covenant involves this promise of literal children. You're going to have lots of, like, actual kids. And, and those kids are going to become a nation, and they're going to have an actual king, and they're really going to live in the land of Canaan. All of that is true, right? Did Abraham literally have a kid? What was his name? I, he literally has a kid named Isaac, right? It really happens, literally. But then, and, and you know, this is really weird, because you go to the New Testament, and what does it say? Let's turn there. Let's turn to Galatians. That's what... That's the book that you're in right now, Galatians, right? What does it say in Galatians? Let's start at verse 15. Well, oh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, at fifth, uh, starting at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, or even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, say, yada, to his offspring. Who are those offspring? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., etc., right? And what were those promises? I mean, they're pretty explicit in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. What are the promises? You're going to get this land, have lots of kids, you're going to have kings. And so you're saying, okay, yeah, I get that, yep. Um, and then it says, it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. You say, what? That, that doesn't make any sense. I thought his offspring was Isaac. But here it's saying his offspring was Christ. Right? Um, and what the New Testament teaches us is that there are these very literal, earthy promises given to Abraham, and yet in and through those promises... God is setting the stage for doing something bigger such that Abraham's ultimate son is not Isaac but Christ. The fullest fulfillment of what God is promising to Abraham is the coming of the Messiah. So we didn't really talk a lot about this, but it's related to another idea which we call typology. Anyone heard that terminology before? And it's the idea that everything that's happening in this era, everything, Right, the sacrificial system, these three anointed offices, prophet, priest, and king, they are all looking forward to, they're all pictures of what God is going to be doing in Christ. So in Abraham's day and age, I, I would say the people are looking forward literally to the promises that are being made to Abraham. And, and one of those promises is that they're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. And so they should know, yeah, Canaan, that's good, but this is going to go global, it's going to go bigger than this. And yet, how does God ultimately bring about that blessing or that promise of blessing the whole earth? Through Jesus Christ is, is how he ultimately does it. We, we talked about the end of the Old Testament and the Jewish order of, of it. Um, so Israel's now in the land of Canaan. They get exiled. And then God does this thing through King Cyrus to bring God's people back into, I mean, what's so, what a great reversal. What was supposed to have happened? Israel was supposed to go bless the world. And what happens at the very end before the coming of Christ? God uses a Gentile to bless the Israelites. I mean, everything's upside down. 
Now, I got off on a rabbit trail there, Greg, and I probably didn't answer your question at all, but... <laughs> I don't <laughs> but uh, the principle of God's fidelity when it c- comes to those temporal blessings, God's fidelity to the Israelite people is unwavering. Right? That doesn't go away. And in that sense, there's a promise, a promise of very literal, earthy, tangible, physical blessings. That, that promise remains, but remember, this is all what kind of covenant? If we're looking at this epoch, what kind of covenant are we talking about? Try again. Oh, if we're talking about all of these covenants within this Old Testament epoch, what kind of covenants are we talking about? They are works-based covenants, meaning what? You got two parties. Who has obligations? Both. Does God uphold his end of the bargain? He upholds it. But the people fail to uphold their end, and so they fail to take possession of the blessings that are ready at every moment to be given to them. They do not take hold of of those blessings. I think I got on the track that I did because when we talk about the promises of God to Abraham I think first and foremost we're talking about those those literal tangible earthy promises and yet baked into them is this promise of the coming Messiah that they don't even see at that time and I would say both the literal physical blessings plus that bigger thing was God was going to do in Christ God's faithful in all of it yes Uh, with with more pictures, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> the the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's gonna be great. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sam Ranahan's book is 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 pretty good. It's uh, who remembers what the name of that book is? The Mystery of Christ, the Covenant and the Kingdom. Sam Ranahan, the Mystery of Christ, and. It, it, it does a pretty good job in an accessible way of talking through all of these these basic ideas and this basic organization of the covenants in Scripture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does have diagrams, though. And it is, small, it is kind of small print, yeah. I, yeah, I understand, I understand that. <laughs> I didn't need these three years ago, but now I, <laughs> I can't read without them. So. Yes? Yeah, great question. This is something that scholars like to 
take notice of. Um, and I mean, one of the things is you have this ancient, you know, right of primogenitor, where it's the, it's the firstborn son who's going to get all the rights, the inheritance, and that just keeps on not happening. I mean, along with having failed firstborn sons. And so you scratch your head and say, why? Why is that? What do you think? Greg? Yeah, maybe it's to drive us forward to the only firstborn son who really can solve the problem for us. Yeah, yeah it, it is interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting fact. And then it's one of those things where you just kind of, and the Bible has a lot of these. You just kind of scratch your head, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that is the case. You know, it's got to be there for a reason. It's got to be teaching us something. One of the, I mean, Paul, of course, and I, I talked about this in the sermon. Paul talks about the law as a schoolmaster. It teaches us something. And, and I would say, and by the way, what is the law? Well, on, on, on the one hand, it's just the five books of Moses. But you, you can just refer to the entire Old Testament as the law as well. It can be a shorthand way of talking about that. And I would say all of it is there to teach us something. And Paul's pointing out what about what it, it teaches us a lot of things. But what, what, what is Paul singling out as something that it teaches us? It's teaching us our need for Christ. You know, sin was in the world before Moses. Sin was in the world for Moses. Do you think nobody knew about sin before Moses? I, w- I would say no. And yet when the, when the law comes in as a schoolmaster, it heightens, it exposes our need for a Savior. And I think a lot of what's happening in the Old Testament is just demonstrating, showing us, boy, humans just have no ability to save themselves. We need a Savior. I mean, if you don't come to that conclusion after reading through the Old Testament, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I've, uh, I've gone back and forth on that one in my head. Would you say that it is? You would say, okay, tell me. Maybe you can convince me. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah, you have the Sabbath, refer, certainly do have the Sabbath reter, referred to uh, as a sign. So you can turn to Exodus 31, 12 to 18. Turn there now. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For why? For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Right? So it keeps going. But it's, it's explicitly referred to as a sign. Um. So 
so you do have that language. I guess the, the, the question is, is it the covenant sign? Less, I would say that, that cir- so certainly circumcision as a sign continues throughout all three of these. It does, it's not abrogated. It does not go away until the coming of the new covenant, right? So it perdures throughout all of this. It never goes away. Um, so you could look at the Sabbath as a sign that uniquely distinguishes this Mosaic covenant from the other components in this, this broader uh, covenantal era. So I, and, and I'd be fine if somebody, I mean, I have friends who, who say that and, and talk about it as a sign. Um, yeah. So I, I've gone back and forth in my mind on that. I, I put it here in the category of obedience rather than as being, I mean, there's all kinds of things in the New Covenant that were to be, different ways that were to be obedient. Um, yeah. Go ahead. To further mark out or distinguish the people. I mean, I think the function of circumcision is very... I mean, it, circumcision works at a number of different levels, but I think the function of cir- circumcision really is, is pretty basic. It physically marks you out as being a member of this people group. Um, so, what was that? Other nations, okay, you're asking if Esau practiced the rite of circumcision. Yeah, so Jacob and Esau, that's a whole other interesting conversation. That's what you meant when you said Esau, Esau practiced it, okay. Yeah. Further further serving to delineate this people group and to set them apart. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, and Esau, of course, is is he included in the family of Abraham? I, physically, yeah. He's included. It would not be inappropriate for him to continue to deploy that sign, and yet he is not part of that group of people who ultimately are going to be uh, recipients of God's covenant blessing. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And in that sense, it would be a supplement to this original sign rather than a sign that di- different. And I guess what I really want to underscore here is that Sabbath doesn't um, kind of distinguish the Abrahamic from the Mosaic covenant, s- s- setting them apart as completely different in kind. I would see the Mosaic covenant as a Continue, however you want to kind of think of the Sabbath in there, the Mosaic Covenant is a continuation of the Abrahamic Covenant. A building upon, yeah. One more question then. Make it a good one. 
Greg just, I said, make it a good one, and he put his hand down. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> Okay, great question. Yeah, any ideas? The head? Headship, co- head of a family? Um, yeah, I, I, I would probably think something along those lines would, would make sense. Um, say it again. You have childbirth. We, don't, we we got enough problems to deal with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we didn't really get into this, but I, I think that because a marriage relationship is a covenantal relationship, that the family is a kind of covenant unit. Um, and with the husband being the head of that covenant unit, and in a sense representing that unit, it it would make sense that not every member of the family has to receive this this mark. So one potential explanation. I thought you were going to give a uh, an alternate explanation. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you everyone. All right, take care. Thanks.